So for a while now, we've been in the Old Testament, uh, pretty much in the book of Exodus, and uh, we've been walking with the Israelites through what uh, has been called holy history. Um, the scripture that I've uh, really landed on for this the, as the, the sort of the theme for all of it and what kind of helps us to interpret the Old Testament for ourselves is the Apostle Paul saying in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, these things happened to them as examples and were written down for us upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So um, today we're going to talk about craving in the desert, cravings in the desert. Um, so that word can be used in a positive or a negative sense. Most often today, when you hear the word craving, what does that elicit in your mind? Yeah, food, something. So is there some kind of food that you just really crave sometimes? Pregnant ladies, you crave really weird stuff, right? And uh, that's probably some body wisdom going on or uh, your child knocking on the door of your belly and saying that they need something. Um, but in the sense that it is being used here in the New Testament, it is not positive. And I think you can understand there is a craven craving, right? or craven cravings, carnal cravings. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the passage that is the basis for our entire walk through this holy history uh, as we've observed Israel coming to uh, Egypt under Joseph and having the favor of Pharaoh and being given uh, the best of the land, and then they become slaves to the Egyptian government, and then God raises up Moses to bring them out of Egypt and literally kicking and screaming the whole way. I mean, we're talking, they start complaining within three days after they cross the Red Sea or the Sea of Reeds. Total miracle, right? Uh, they cross through the water on dry ground. And every time they encounter one of these superior, superb, amazing, astonishing, awesome miracles, they're elated. But then, you know, they always have this attitude, the Israelites in the wilderness, you know, God, what have you done for me lately? Oh, yeah, but that was so yesterday, right? And we're told to remember what God has done. In fact, if you want to know the, uh, the theme of the entire book of Deuteronomy, it is remember. Moses is trying to remind them many years after the events that we're looking at, uh, remind them of what God had done in their lives. And I hope that you try to remember that too, Okay. When you're going through difficult times, challenging times, depressing times, one of the ways to put yourself out of it is to remember. Read Psalm 42 and 43, all right? The psalmist says, why are you so depressed, my soul? Why are you so cast down, right? Remember what God has done for you. Remember these times that the Lord has acted in your life. And if you can't remember those times, you probably aren't saved because when you have the Lord Jesus in your life, um, he is performing providential miracles in your life all the time. And so there is constant, um, not only need, but obvious uh, reason to praise the Lord. Uh, actually, thank the Lord. So thanksgiving and praise are different, right? Thanking the Lord means I'm looking at something that he's done, and I am giving him credit for that. Praise is just thanking him for who he is. And that's something you can always do regardless of the circumstances in your life. So let's take a look at this basic passage here. Uh, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And uh, I'm going to read verses 1 through 13 here, so we'll kind of get in the flow of things 
For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea. So talking about the, the pillar of cloud that followed them and the Red Sea or the Sea of Reeds here. And they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And they all ate the same spiritual food. That was the manna. And all drank the same spiritual drink. That was the water that was miraculously provided. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for their dead bodies were spread out in the wilderness. And that was the end result. They continued to rebel against God and rebel against God until God simply would not allow them to go into the promised land. Actually, they refused to go in and fight for it. And uh, God said, okay, well then, what you've been saying all along is going to happen. You're going to die in this desert, but your children are going to go in and take it. And that's exactly what did happen. Verse 6, this is also thematic for today and for our study. Now, these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as indeed they craved them. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor are we to commit sexual immorality as some some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor are we to put the Lord to the test, as some of them did, and were killed by the snakes. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written down for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let the one who thinks he stands watch that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but something that is common to mankind. God is faithful, and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you were able to bear, but will with the temptation provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So I think a lot of the time we think, well, I'm good. You know, things are going fine, and uh, I'm taking care of business. And uh, we need to be warned by verse 12, which says, those of you that think you stand, take heed lest you fall. And I'm really bringing this up at the beginning of this message because I want you to take heed. You may listen to what is taught today, and you may say, well, that's, that's not my problem, no big deal. But I would say to you that the warning verse is verse 12. Those of you that think you stand, take heed lest you fall. I've used this as an illustration many times for that verse. Uh, I used to take teenagers skiing all the time. Uh, I've taken teenagers to every major ski resort in Colorado. And I just really liked to push the, the limits when I was skiing. I would really try hard to to ski down harder and harder slopes. Now, I'm not a superior athlete, but I figure out how to do things and then I do them. So I taught myself largely how to ski. I took a couple of lessons a long time ago and then that was it. Um, so I started skiing blacks and then I started skiing double blacks. And double blacks, they're really no fun unless you're an incredibly good skier. They're just a lot of work, but it was a challenge for me. So I can remember times that I would ski these incredibly hard runs, right? And I was paying attention while I was on the really hard run. I'm on a black and I'm going down and I got to be careful because, and I ski, right? Uh, Now I snowboarded a little bit as well, but I never snowboarded really hard runs. Snowboarding is more kind of flow, you know, whatever, unless you decide that you're going to jump and go crazy and do all that. And I never did, but I did ski. And But I can remember on a couple of different occasions that I had just skied down something that was incredibly challenging, very difficult. I hadn't fallen at all. And then I get down to the bottom of the slope and it goes, it transitions usually, you know, double black 
and then you know into a black or into a blue. And if you don't know anything about skiing, double black is the hardest, black is the next hardest, then blue, then green, right? Greens are easy. Greens are practically level. You know, you kind of have to push yourself along on greens sometimes. Uh, you know, if you fall over on a green, then you're not going to keep sliding down the slope. If you fall over on a blue, you might slide a little bit. If you fall over on a black, you may end up at the bottom. And if you fall over on a double black, you just die. Um, but in any event, I, I can remember, you know, having conquered one of these incredible runs, feeling really good about myself, and I'm just bouncing along down at the bottom. And I know I've got a bunch of teenagers, you know, around somewhere. Usually they're going up on the, on the lifts, you know. I'm kind of, you know, because I, I was an amazingly cool youth minister. Let's just be honest. I, I really was. <laughs> Ask anybody, all right? I know I'm not a very cool pastor, but I was a really cool youth minister, all right? And so I'd get to the bottom, you know, and I'd be like, you know, that's, that was good, man. I just <laughs> and crash on a green right in front of everybody that's going off on the, on the lifts. And they're like, oh, <laughs> he doesn't know how to ski. And I'm like, I just skied something incredible. Why did I do that? Why do people do that? Because you're not paying attention, right? You're not focused any longer. You watch this with, with people that are incredible athletes and they get put in one of these situations where, you know, they're, they're hey, here's a, here's a ball and shoot and whatever. And they miss a couple, even though, you know, it's somebody like a, a Steph Curry that makes ridiculously hard shots like the last game that he was in. But, you, you know, if they're not on, if they're not focused, if they're not concentrated, they don't always do nearly as well as they would do in a game. So if you judge them on that basis, you're really not getting who that is. But that's you too. You've got to pay attention. You've got to stay focused, right? Um, this is one of the things that I, I think is taken away from us by these devices right here. You know, these are just tools. This is not good or evil. Uh, this, this is my phone and I've got my notes on it here. Um, there's all kinds of really good things that you can do with these, but they can also be incredibly distracting and keep you from having good, healthy relationships with people and keep you from being, as they say today, mindful. You're not paying attention to what's going on around you. So the question is, are you paying attention? Well, I hope you will for the next few minutes. Um, we're going to look through these cravings in the desert. That's what he said, the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, 6. And the word here can be translated desire as well. Um, so what were the things that they craved in the desert that they desired? Well, right off the bat, he says, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. They wanted to be like everybody else. They didn't want to um, worship this God that was invisible and didn't have a statue that you could go to and, and offer an offering to. So Moses is up on the top of the mountain for 40 days. Now, that's a long time. As I mentioned last week or week before last, that's a long time, uh, and Moses is up there. If you've ever done Lent, you know that 40 days is a long time. And so they're down there at the bottom of the mountain. These people have no patience. They have the, God, what have you done for me lately? Uh, attitude toward everything. And so they just grab uh, Aaron, who is Moses' elder brother and the priest, and they tell him, hey, just make up a God for us and take us back to Egypt. In fact, I'll tell you what, I like reading scripture because I think that uh, we don't read scripture enough. Um, but this story is found in uh, Exodus chapter 32. I won't read the whole chapter, but I'll get you into it here. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled around Aaron and said to him, come, make us a God who will go before us. 
For this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what happened to him. Well, this is what they'd been wanting all along. This was really just an excuse. They'd been constantly trying to go back to Egypt, go back to slavery ever since Moses delivered them from it. Verse 2, Aaron said to them, and it's appalling to me how cooperative Aaron is. It really is. That he just doesn't hold to uh, this God that he's purportedly a priest for. Aaron said to them, tear off the gold rings which are on the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And then he took the gold from their hands and fashioned, uh, and fashioned it with an engraving tool and made it into a cast metal calf. You, you forsake God for a calf? Okay. This is your God, Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. So it may be that they just wanted a God. They didn't care which God. It seems, as, as you'll see as I read, that Moses, excuse me, that Aaron was trying to associate Yahweh with this calf and say, well, just look at this calf and that'll be Yahweh, right? So he was probably compromising and saying, well, I still believe in Yahweh, but since there's no image of him, I'll just take this calf. Well, there's lots of reasons for that, but one of the main reasons was that the, the chief deity among uh, the, the, the Canaanites, the land that they were going into, was, was, his name was El, and sometimes he was uh, represented as a bull. And since Yahweh was a reasonably young God in the thinking of these people, perhaps a calf would have been the reason for that. Um, then he took the gold from their hands. He fashioned it. Verse 5, now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of it. So he fashioned the calf. He built an altar in front of it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. So, yeah, they're going to have a big party to celebrate their false god. So the next day they got up early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to engage in lewd behavior. So that's the, the verse that the Apostle Paul quotes there. So sexual immorality among them was associated with this idolatrous worship. When I was younger, I remember discussion of so-called gateway drugs. Have you ever heard this term, a gateway drug? Okay, so really, marijuana, and everybody's in love with marijuana. You think it's harmless, and you know you think it's your buddy. And every time I post anything about marijuana, you get one of those those smirky, smiley faces. You know what I'm saying? They're supposed to be happy, but they're always really being used to make fun of you and mock you. Okay, marijuana is a gateway drug. Okay, it, it makes it easier to experiment with quote-unquote, harder drugs. Now, this sermon is not about drugs, but idolatry is a gateway sin, right? Once you elevate something above Almighty God, it's easy to just go your own way and do what you want. That's why the Scripture says um, that the fool has said in his heart, there is no God, they are corrupt, their deeds are vile. Well, why does the fool say in his heart there is no God? Because he doesn't want a God there to tell him what to do or to tell her what to do. So then I can just follow the corruption of my own heart. So idolatry, that's, that's the first sin. And that for you and I is the temptation to make up and worship our own gods, right? These things happen to them as examples so that we would not crave evil things as they did. And this is one of those evil things this is what they did. And this is at the very foot of the mountain. 
I mean, we're talking, you know, this is uh, several months away from the time that they'd been, de- been that they had been delivered from Egypt, and they immediately got into this uh, horrific uh, uh, celebration to this God, where they were they were cavorting around and and lewd behavior. We don't even use that term in English anymore, do we? Do you know what the term lewd means? Have you heard these ter- terms used together? Lewd and lascivious behavior. It's being immodest, typically in a sexual way. Well, that's the modus operandi of the United States of America, right? Sex sells. And we've been sold everything from toothpaste to beer with sex. And people think that that's, they need to be sexy. They need to have sex appeal. And people are lewd today. And it is justified and honored. And it shouldn't be honored. Modesty should be honored, right? Well, Moses came down from the mountain. If I continued reading the passage from chapter 32 of Exodus, he saw this. He broke the two tablets of the Ten Commandments. We preached on the the Ten Commandments a couple of weeks ago. Because really, that's symbolic of the fact that they were already breaking their covenant with God even before it was fully established. He broke the Ten Commandments, and then he ground up the calf and turned it into gold dust, poured it in the water, the water that Yahweh had provided, and made them drink it. Yeah, that's weird, right? Well, it probably made them a little sick, and it gave them a little taste of what they were doing and how it made God sick, right? And uh, so, uh, you know, some pretty terrible stuff went on there, and then they moved on. They moved on from the mountain, and they start marching further onward toward uh, the land of Canaan, which is going to be their promised land. The next thing that the Apostle Paul mentions in verse 8, he said, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. Now, that is found in Numbers chapter 25, and that is actually uh, an incident that takes place after they had rejected entering the promised land. But um, the people sinned by joining themselves binding themselves, covenanting with, again, another God. Now, whereas the sexual immorality at the foot of Mount Sinai was probably just a part of the the debauchery that was going on, in this case, they bound themselves to the God of Peor, the Baal of Peor, Baal, in Hebrew means Lord, and they bound themselves to this false God, and part of the worship of this God was to engage in sex with temple prostitutes. Um, I'll read a little bit of that incident. This is Numbers chapter 25. While Israel remained at Shittim, the people began to commit infidelity. What's infidelity? They're committing adultery, right? Adultery against God, right? The one that they had covenanted with, and adultery against their own spouses with the daughters of Moab. So they're in the region of the Moabites, which is on the east side of the Jordan River and also down south toward uh, the the Dead Sea. Obviously, the Dead Sea is on the west side of the Jordan River, but just trying to locate Moab for you if you would like to look it up on a map. For they, that is the Moabites, invited the people to to the sacrifices of their gods And the people ate and bowed down to their gods. These people liked to party, didn't they? And every single time they encountered some sort of a false god, they were ready to have a party. 
Verse 3, so Israel became followers of Baal. Now, that's how the New American Standard Bible 2020 edition translates it. But it literally means they bound themselves to Baal, which means they covenanted with Baal, right? And this is the Baal of Peor, the Baal of that mountain. Uh, this was a mountain called Peor. Uh, people back at, uh, in this time saw gods as having authority over regions. So different nations had different gods. Different gods were over different regions, different areas. And honestly, this may come from the demonic, right? Uh, Satan is not omniscient, and he is not omnipresent, but he has an army of fallen angels that do his bidding and follow him. And it would seem that they've divided the earth up, divide and conquer, and there are demonic spirits that are in charge of different regions of the earth and different nations. And uh, I, if I wanted to go into more detail, I could. In the book of Daniel, we see that when Daniel was praying that uh, an angel, the angel Gabriel, came down to speak to him, right, and had to fight through what he calls the prince of Persia. Well, this isn't the earthly prince of Persia. This was a, uh, a principality, a power, uh, a fallen angel who was in charge of the nation of Persia. So bear that in mind. Um, and the Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord so that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So if you want to know what God's opinion is of sexual immorality, you just kind of need to read the Old Testament. We're very accustomed to God's grace and his willingness to forgive us. We're also accustomed to our culture's um, um, willingness to do just about anything sexually and call it okay. Uh, we're very promiscuous people. Uh, we're a very licentious people. But God's standards are the same. God's standards concerning sexual involvement between human beings have not or has not changed. His plan from the beginning, Jesus affirms this. He's talking to uh, his disciples, and he's also talking to the Pharisees, and he says, have you not heard that he who created them from the beginning created them male and female? And a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, and the two will become one flesh. What God has joined together, let man not separate. That's what Jesus said, and he affirmed what the Scripture teaches in the Old Testament. And we go far astray when we affirm anything other than that. Anything outside of that is defined as sexual immorality. So the people were bowing down to this God called the Baal of Peor. Well, Baal had a female consort uh, named Asherah, and she was the goddess of fertility. So this would be similar to the goddess Aphrodite in Greek mythology, which, by the way, um, we're going back to the Old Testament, but we're looking at the Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthians, right? So this is first century A.D., and then we're going back to 1400 B.C. to look at the actual events. But remember, Paul is writing to the Corinthians and they had the same serious problem with sexual immorality that we have today. In fact, Corinth, above Corinth, on this mountain called the Acrocorinth, was this temple to who? Aphrodite, the goddess of love. Now, we're not talking about the, the goddess of platonic love. We're talking about the goddess of sexual love. And uh, um, 
it was written uh, in, a, in an old document, an, uh, a very a document from the time period, that um, there were a thousand temple prostitutes that came down from Aphrodite's temple in Corinth to ply their trade, right? They, they didn't wait for people to come to church, in other words. They said, we'll bring church to you. And this was their way of uh, collecting both revenue and also of uh, gaining support for Aphrodite and her temple. So this is, this is a problem in Corinth. It's a problem in the United States of America. And what we see here is this is what happens when we leave behind the Lord and his standards and simply follow our own misguided hearts. What does the scripture say? Uh, a little bit earlier in this same book of 1 Corinthians, we find this. The body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Your body is not a toy, right? We just kind of pursue whatever we feel like pursuing, and this is especially when we're younger, but, you, but your body's not a toy, it's a temple, right? You open yourself up and you allow the spirit of Almighty God to dwell in you. And then wherever you bring that temple, you're bringing God into that situation, right? I find it interesting that it says that they uh, bound themselves to this Baal, the, the, the god of Peor, and that in doing so, uh, in worshiping this god, that they committed acts of sexual immorality, presumably with, it says, with the daughters of Moab. Uh, so probably not all of them were temple prostitutes, but they were doing this as an act of worship. But I, I, it's appropriate. See, sex was designed for marriage. Sex is an expression of a one flesh relationship. Sex is a method of binding two people together. It is indelible. It is likely whether you want to or not, that you can call up virtually every sexual experience you've ever had because it is such a powerful um, and potent uh, thing in your memory. It, it, in, it is indelibly written on your memory. And so this is why two people are bound together. There's the, the whole thing, it's, it's, an, it's an entire experience. It's, it's the sense of, uh, your feeling and, and your smell and, you know, all of this comes together in this experience and that's why it doesn't go away. You're very, very foolish if you promote sexual expression among young people because they're always going to have to go back to that and deal with that. And you need to go back in your own life and remember that. When we teach young people to sustain themselves in celibacy until they're married, we're teaching them to have fidelity in their marriage. When you fight it out when you're young and remain pure, it will help you to remain pure when you're in your marriage. If you have chosen to just go out and sow your wild oats, so to speak, then you've already practiced adultery. You've already practiced infidelity, and it's easy to carry that practice into your marriage. So do what you would want your spouse to do right now. Do you want your spouse sleeping around and doing all of these things, right? 
So we could get into this in depth, but this is as far as I'm going to go with it. The body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. That's verse 13 in 1 Corinthians 6. And then skipping down to verse 18, the apostle writes, flee sexual immorality. We're told to stand against the devil, but we're told to run away from sexual immorality. Every other sin that a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. I'm telling you, these experiences write themselves on your brain and your nervous system. You're sinning against your own temple. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God and that you are not your own? How many of you are saved? Raise your hand if you're saved. Say, I'm saved. If you're genuinely saved, you've said Jesus is Lord. Can you say that? You're saying he owns you. You're saying that he has the authority over your body, not you. That's what you're saying, right? Your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own. Say, I'm not my own. You were bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body. Let's move on. Then, uh, so first craving idolatry, then craving sexual immorality, and now craving something new. He says, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. So I mentioned several weeks ago when we talked about God satisfying your hunger in the wilderness that God uh, provided manna for the people. This, this bread-like substance that came and was available to them every single morning. Well, eventually, as I mentioned them and I, then and I told you we would get to, the people got sick of the manna. They got tired of it. It was old. That's so old. I'm so tired of it. Are you tired of anything right now? Are you tired of me talking right now? <laughs> it's so old. I'm so sick of this. I keep having to deal with this over and See, what happens is we have this inveterate desire for things to change. And God does change things. That's why we have seasons in the year. And there are seasons and times in your life, right? There is a, you know, the, the uh, writer to, or the writer of Ecclesiastes says there's a time and a purpose for everything under heaven. There's a season for everything. But see, we just get impatient and we get sick of what we have. We get sick of the food we have. We get sick of the people that are around us. We get sick of the places we're going to. And we think that if we just move to another place, we just move the, the, the furniture around, that everything is going to change. But it doesn't because the problem is not with these things. The problem is with me. The problem is I'm not grateful to God for his provision. And these people were not. They just plainly said, they grumbled against Moses. They said, we are sick of this food. We're sick of it. Wow, that's God's provision. And they're sick of it. So, once again, symbolic of what they were doing to God, these snakes started biting them, right? Venomous snakes started biting them. So they're biting and devouring and grumbling, and this is biting, snapping at God. And these snakes start biting them. So God tells Moses he wants him to make a, uh, a, essentially a statue on a pole of a snake, which, by the way, the symbol that we have today of medicine with the snakes going around a pole come from this, okay? 
And Moses was to raise that pole up, and it was very tall because anybody in the community could look at it and see it. And he said, that is Moses said, that when someone looks upon that snake, then the venom that has infected them will no longer infect them, and they will no longer die. And that's exactly what happened. Well, this is something that God intended to be symbolic because many years later, the Lord Jesus in uh, John chapter 3 quotes this very verse. He says in John 3, 14 and 15, And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that everyone who believes will have eternal life in him. Oh, in the very next verse you know. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life or eternal life. Jesus was raised up on a cross. And when I look to that cross in faith, then I am saved from the sickness and the venom of my own sin. But you see, if someone was so caught up and so angry and so filled with, with resentment and bitterness and hatred that they just refused to look up, and they, they were bitten and they just were angry with God and they just kept looking down, then they wouldn't be healed. They would die. They would die in their sin. All they had to do was in humility look up and see the provision that God had made. And that's all you've got to do. Now, again, I don't know if any of this is applicable to those of you in this room today or to those of you watching, but I know that all of us sin, right? If you don't sin, then you're not paying attention. You do sin. I sin, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin, that is, the, the price for sin is death. All sin. That's the price for sin. When I follow my flesh, the flesh always leads me to death. But when I pursue the Spirit, when I plant to the Spirit, then that generates or produces life in me. And that's what I need to pursue, and that's what I need to follow. Right? So... Um, if you've sinned, if like these people, they spoke against God and Moses. They blasphemed God. They spoke against him. Maybe you've been so angry over your situation that you have not just complained, but blamed God. Instead of praising God, you've blamed God. If you find yourself in that situation, maybe even have turned away from God, you may be listening right now or you may be in the room right now, but that doesn't mean that your heart is with us that your heart is with me, that your heart is with the Lord, right? Well, repent. That's where you need to change, right? So this was a, a desire to change just for the sake of change, perhaps. Well, there is a way we need to change. We need to turn away from ourselves and turn away from our sin and turn toward the Lord. Listen, friends, routine is not bad. Do you realize this? Routine is not bad. Now, you do need a break sometimes. It might be you just need a vacation, okay? You know, you need to take a sabbatical. That doesn't mean you're taking leave of your obligations or taking leave of your senses. You just need a break. Enough is enough. You know, some of us are just burned out. And that doesn't mean that all the things that you're doing should be, you know, thrown away. Because once you throw them away, you're going to realize you don't know what you got until it's gone. 
right? But you may just need a break. And, you know, the summer is when a lot of people take that break. You know, even a few days can help you. It really can. Just get away from things. Take that sabbatical. That word comes from Sabbath, right? Have that time of, of rest. But don't think that tradition is automatically bad. Tradition carries with it. Sometimes it's just people do it for the sake of doing it, and they don't know why they do it. That's not good. But tradition typically carries truth in it. And so when you leave tradition behind, you throw out the baby with the bathwater. Figure out why the tradition is there. Don't just do it by rote. Don't just do it without thinking. Consider why you're doing it, and then pursue that tradition. We have a lot of traditions in this church. We don't call them that, but we do a lot of things over and over and over again. And those of you that have been here for years, oh, yeah, yeah, we're doing that again. Okay, but it's, it's like my karate kids. Um, this, is, this is very much a part of Japanese culture, and it is certainly a part of karate. Um, we practice the same things over and over. It's called kihon, and kihon are the basics. Over and over, we teach them the same blocks. Over and over, we see, teach them the same punches. Over and over, we teach them the same kata, which is this choreographed series of movements designed to simulate a fight over and over and over and over. And in a culture that is addicted to novelty, where we think that we need to constantly change things, that we can't do it the way it was handed down, this doesn't promote a huge karate class. In fact, if I was charging, I don't know how many people would be coming, right? Because we get, we get tired of doing that, but see, doing the same things over and over reinforces those things. So we just want to make sure that we're doing the right things over and over. Make sure you have good routines, healthy routines. Make, th- make sure that you produce, pr- um, that you pursue healthy um, traditions, okay? So in the end, we need to look to Jesus on the cross and we need to be forgiven of those times when we have left him behind, when we've turned to idols, the primary idol of self, when we have been engaged maybe just in our mind in sexual immorality, um, when we have turned away from the Lord just for the sake of novelty or innovation or, or change for the sake of change, right? So that's what the apostle is teaching here. There's one more, uh, and I may get into it in a couple of weeks. Um, it's craving control, and I think a lot of us are there as well. But I'm going to conclude the message here today because I think uh, stopping with this idea of uh, the, the serpent on the pole that Jesus said, you know, the Son of Man will be raised up like that, and if you look to him, you'll be saved. That's a good place for us to end. Look to Jesus and be saved. But first, you've got to admit that you need to be saved. And that gets us back to what I said at the beginning of this sermon. Verse 12, those of you who think you stand, take heed lest you fall. So as we enter into another time of worship, Ask the Lord what he would have you do today. Um, If you haven't already, allow him to examine your heart and examine your mind and respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit.